Welcome, welcome everybody to another edition of Biblically Speaking, the podcast. I'm your host, Jared Bowman, and as always with me is my co-host, Brian Screaming Eagle, Bear Summoner, Tiberius, the last man standing when this world comes to an end, Haynes. How you doing today, buddy? I am doing fantastic and looking forward to our study in this today. Yeah, it's going to be kind of a complicated one because I, I want to start with this idea that Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 6 and 1. It's really a unique passage of scripture, but Paul says that basically if we're not working together for the cause of the gospel, then we can literally receive the grace of God in vain. And and that is a little bit contrary, or actually a lot contrary, to the way that most people think about grace and what it means and sort of gets to the heart of a big discussion that I think a lot of people need to have about grace because I think on every side of this issue, people are confused about what the Bible actually says about grace. I mean, you and I were talking in the pre-show. There are literally passages in the Bible that seem to contradict one another, where on one hand, the Apostle Paul is say, saying, we're saved by grace through faith, and yet Peter is in Acts 2 saying, you know, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. And then over in 1 Peter 3, 21, he says, baptism saves you. Until we really get into this, I think that most people are sort of comfortable with what they've already heard and always heard. But if we don't explore this, we're really missing out on deepening our relationship with God, having confidence in our salvation, and really knowing whether or not we're in a relationship with Christ. And so there's a lot on the table today as we go through this. So let's get into this and let's start talking about grace. Jared, sounds like you're going to make a lot of people upset. Um, <laughs> so I love to be taking this path with you. Most people don't really understand grace. It wouldn't be an episode of the podcast if we weren't trying to make somebody mad. <laughs> I hear that. I hear that. But no, I mean, this is a salvation issue. This is something that, I mean, fundamentally gets to the heart of what does it mean to be a Christian. And the first thing that I want to tackle is this idea of can somebody receive the grace of God in vain? I know we sort of dealt with Calvinism before, but that to me is right at the heart of dealing with a lot of the denominations out there where grace is this overwhelming feeling that God has saved you and that that's all that's required or that uh, grace is irresistible. I mean, Paul literally says you can receive the grace of God in vain. And you were telling me, uh, pointing out in the pre-show, that over in Galatians 2 and 21, that, that it literally says that if you reject the grace of God, then Jesus died in vain. So let's talk about what it means that grace could be in vain. I think that's the best launching off point for this really huge discussion. Well, and one thing uh, that's really hard to say is, you know, first and foremost, what what is grace? That actually might be another way to to kind of get ourselves going. But the idea that you can receive something in vain, that you can make it yours, you can have it, you can possess it, and it can do you no good. That really seems to be a remarkable idea. And it is contrary to just about anybody who wants to say that they have a salvation that is purely by grace. Because if a person could receive grace and it doesn't save them, then it means grace can't be exclusive of itself, the, the only thing that we have that saves us, or that it's the unique active uh, ingredient of salvation. Or might it be more correct to say that maybe our idea of grace is not what saves us? Because and of course, I, that's actually the answer. 
Right. Yeah. Because I mean, I think I think we forget to connect a lot of different things. And and part of this comes with this idea of unpacking how grace and faith and baptism are all working together under grace in order to bring about the redemption of man. But you mentioned a, a good place to start there, and that is what are we talking about when we're talking about grace? What does the religious world in general mean and what does the Bible mean when it starts talking and using words like grace? I always hear people say when they talk about grace, they say grace is unmerited favor. And I don't mind that definition if we know what we're talking about. We talk about an unmerited favor Um, because what we're saying is unmerited means it hasn't been earned. But that that doesn't exclude the idea of conditions or expectations or the like and uh, favor or some say unmerited mercy uh, favor the idea of God bestowing something or a divine gift of something again understanding that 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 might be more than one way that it's going to be received so grace is actually a word that that, that probably doesn't really fit any singular definition uh, typically Jared what I like to do is I think well where's the first time I introduced to the idea of grace and it's way back in Genesis chapter 6 and it's with the man Noah and God is looking at the world, and the Bible says in verse 6 of Genesis 6 that he was grieved in his heart. God, God was unhappy with the way that mankind had gone. In verse 7, he makes the statement, I'm going to destroy man, that there's going to be a penalty. But then the first time we meet this word grace, not every Bible uses this word. I'm looking at the New King James right now. Uh, some will say mercy. Um, it says in verse 8 that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And I like that passage because, and there you see another translation uh, from the New American Standard. They'll say found favor, um, which is perfectly fine. That, that gives us a great point. Uh, here is our idea, the first introduction we have to grace, uh, that, that God was angry with the world, but one person has a, a difference. One person God is going to see a bit differently. Now, why is that the case? Well, um, the Bible says in the very next verse, it tells us that Noah is a just man. So God's mercy isn't just, well, I'm going to just pick somebody and that person's going to have my favor. God's favor had a circumstance for it. God found right. Noah to be a just and upright man. So, so right away, our first introduction to grace tells us some things. It even goes beyond that and says that he walked with God. So, so Noah has right. the, had the mindset, and I switched over to the New King James there so that they could see the they could see favor and grace yeah. as being the same concept there. But Noah was a man perfect in his generation, and Noah walked with God. Now, what's interesting about this, let me switch back over to my New American Standard, is that when we go over to the Hebrew letter, you know, here we're told that Noah that Noah is saved by grace. Over in the Hebrew letter, we're told that Noah is saved by faith. In Hebrews chapter 11 In verse 7, by faith, Noah being warned by God about things not yet seen in reverence prepared the ark for the salvation of this world by which he condemned the world and became the heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. So here in Hebrews 11 and 7, Noah is saved by faith. Now what's interesting is most people who would say that we're saved by grace alone would say we're also saved in faith alone. And here, Noah's faith is evidenced in his obedience to the divine warning about things that had not yet seen. And what we see is that it wasn't just Noah doing something, it was that he revered God. 
And so Noah's faith yeah. was evident in his reverence for God. And I would say that whatever definition of grace we're going to come up with today, and whatever definition of grace we are appealing to our listeners to understand, it needs to be something that shows the proper reverence for God. Now, That's a fantastic point. Well, thank you. Uh, every once in a while, you know. But uh, I do want to do want to point out. We point this out on these shows all the time. That if you disagree with the things that we're saying, we we want you to be vocal about it. We want you to leave the comments. We want you to challenge us. I mean, hey, if you're even interested, we might even have you on a program to talk it through and and debate it. I'd be be willing to do that. But the one thing we don't want you to do is just walk away upset because we're not painting a target on anybody. This is really just trying to get down to the answer of what does the Bible say? And fundamentally, one of the things the Bible does say is that we are saved by grace through faith. And that is an irrevocable truth. In fact, it is fundamentally how Paul describes the transformation that is available and found only in Christ as he's writing his letter to the Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Actually, let's take the let's take the, the ramp, because I just love this passage. But it says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of our flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. And so we have this repeatable pattern that we see in man that, that's part of his, the, the selfishness that is part of, of being, living in a fleshly body. But God, here's why, being rich in mercy, because, and where did the mercy come from, of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace. So he wants us to focus on the fact that we're not saving ourselves, but rather he is saving us, and that's according to his grace, so that by the riches of his, he might show the riches of his grace uh, in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. So, you know, Brian, and this is one of the, the things that I've pointed out uh, a few times to, to people that I've had discussions with, that if you want to tell me that you absolutely believe that we are saved by grace through faith, then I 100% agree with that, that I'm saved by grace through faith. That is exactly what Ephesians 2 says. Now, to comprehend that, I've got to go and figure out what does it mean to be saved through faith and by grace. And we've already seen in Hebrews chapter 11 that faith is not just sitting around believing, that faith is having a reverence to God that moves us in the way that God directs so that we are showing that reverence in the things that we're doing. That was, that was the description of Noah's faith in Hebrews chapter 11. So can we, 
I mean, I, 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 it's not something you and I have ever talked about before. So if you want to take the opposing view on that, you're more than welcome. Can we confidently say that we're saved by grace through faith? Oh, yeah. Um, and again, we're, you know, there's no disputation about this. The real problem comes down to uh, what, first of all, what is faith? Of course, if I'm saved by grace through faith, faith is the avenue by which my, the grace of God is received. That, which is what Hebrews 11 says, right? Hebrews 11 right. says Noah's action. Uh, here's, and here's what's really cool about this. In, in Hebrews 11, the passage you read said Noah prepared the ark for the saving of his household. Second mm -hmm. Peter says God saved Noah. Well, mm -hmm. if we don't understand grace through faith, then we have a contradiction whether is it God who saved Noah or Noah who saved Noah. Right. And of course, this comes down to the concepts of grace and how grace works because, uh, and again, how faith works and how faith makes grace active, uh, that we need to appreciate the idea that there's a there's a requirement of faith with grace, and we have to understand what faith is. And all of this uh, fits nicely, actually, to the passage you just read, because right in the middle of the passage you just read, which talks about God's mercy, God's grace, God's salvation, we got a little taste of baptism. And that's going to need some explanation, because in the middle of that, it said it was God's grace and mercy that raised us up. There's the reference to baptism. If you're not sure about that, go to the parallel passage of Colossians 2, where he says you were raised up in baptism, uh, that uh, confirms that, that that is a raised up in baptism statement, that when we're talking about grace and we're talking about faith, uh, that Paul's tying, throwing baptism right into that mix and stirring it all up. And we have to appreciate what it means to be saved by grace through faith and we're baptism next to that. Yeah, let's get that up on the screen and take a look at it for just a second yeah, here. Yeah, yeah. So here's the, the parallel passage in Colossians 2. And, and if you're not aware of this, that Ephesians and Colossians are often called the twin letter because yeah. they, they have so many points of similarity. Ephesians is a bit longer. It goes into a few more things that Colossians doesn't. Colossians actually sometimes dips more into nuances than Ephesians does. But if you look at uh, Colossians two verse eight, it says, "See to it that you take no uh, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in Him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form." We've used this passage to talk about is Jesus God already, and in Him you have been made complete, and He is the head over all rule and authority, and in Him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body that of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. You know, that's interesting because you mentioned Ephesians 2 sort of gives us a little taste of baptism and by saying we were raised up. And here the, Paul is telling the church at Colossae that the reason why baptism works is that it is an expression of our faith in him, that having yeah. been buried with him in baptism, which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God, that baptism works because we trust God. And so yeah. what we have here is that baptism is actually, and this is something we were talking about in, a, in the Misunderstood Verses episode, but baptism is actually less of a work than somebody saying that I'm saved by grace and I need to go say a sinner's prayer in order to receive Jesus into my heart. That that's actually saying that there is something I am doing 
that that brings Jesus into my heart versus this, which says I'm 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 being buried, so I'm submitting to baptism, and that God is raising me up through faith. It's actually not me doing anything in baptism. It's God Wait doing everything. Wait a second, Jared. Are you saying baptism isn't a work of men? I am saying baptism is as far removed from a work as you can get. In fact, Surely if that's... Oh, go ahead. No, no, you go ahead. Uh, Surely if you're saying that, there would be a place in the Bible where we're told that baptism isn't the work of man, but the work of God. Well, can you think of such a place? I'm wondering if Paul might have said something like that in Titus chapter 3, where Paul was talking about the kindness of God and the love of God appeared, which, by the way, sounds a lot like Ephesians 2, doesn't it? Where it talks about the mercy of God appearing and the mercy of God acting. And he says that that mercy appeared in verse 5 of chapter 3. Uh, it's not by works of righteousness which we have done. Okay, not a work of righteousness. According to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. And so what's fascinating here, Jared, is that we have a very direct statement by Paul talking about baptism, the washing mm -hmm. of regeneration, the renewing of the Holy Spirit, Acts chapter 2, verse 38. And he's saying that God does the work there. Jared, I'd like to understand that better. Uh, how can I understand God working in baptism? Well, I think fundamentally the first thing we have to understand is that what we are after we are baptized is not just people that have changed their behavior and and been put on a new course, but that the Bible fundamentally talks about us as being someone different from who we were before we were baptized. You know, just such a passage would be Romans chapter 12 when he says, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you be living sacrifices, and then talking about the renewing of their mind and how they were how that renewing that regeneration, same concept that's being used here in Titus three, was was to show the will of God active in our life. In fact, let me go over there so that we can actually I was paraphrasing, but we can look at it together. Beginning of verse one says, "I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship." New King James says, "Reasonable service, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect." And so, what we see here is that in baptism, we're becoming this living sacrifice. It's a transformation of our mind. It's a transformation of our heart. It's complete surrender to the will of God. And it's not just doing better things and stopping bad things. It, it has to be about a complete transformation. And it gets beyond just following a pattern. I mean, uh, Galatians 2 and 20 speaks of, Paul speaks about the fact that it's not he who lives, but Christ crucified who lives in him. That when you have this idea of the internal transformation, and that this transformation is happening by the grace of God. Another passage that we could go to that substantiates that would be uh, Romans chapter 6. And getting over into uh, Romans 6 right from the very beginning, he's asking the question, can he continue in sin? Because he just said where sin is gone, grace abounds even more. He says, "Shall we? Uh, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin live in it? There's a requirement of grace right there that you can't continue to live in this willful sin. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ, Jesus have been baptized into his death? 
Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. So again, we're seeing that God is doing the transformation. Just as, just as Jesus was put to death and God raised him up, God raises us up to walk in this newness of life, this regenerated life that he talked about in Titus, or regenerated spirit that he talked about in Titus chapter 3, to be these living sacrifices, those who were dead and are now alive in Romans chapter 12. These are all things that are are, are areas that only God can deal in. I mean, you're talking about transforming, as he said in Ephesians 2, death into life. That's why it's grace, that baptism is not transforming death into life. God taking and, re and replacing my spirit with something that is yielding to him is transforming from death into life. That's the regeneration he's talking about there. You know, what's important to understand is that even in the language that we use when we describe baptism, we don't describe it as something we're doing. Right. Uh, we would say, I am being baptized. Well, who's doing the work there? Uh, it's not the person baptizing. They don't have any authority. They can't take away sins. They have no power, uh, so to speak. Right. Uh, so, and it's not the person being baptized, of course, because they also don't have uh, uh, that ability to say those things as well. Mm -hmm. um, what is fascinating, though, is if we talk about things like faith or just believing, let's let's differentiate faith and believing for a second to say okay. uh, believing in God. In John chapter 6, Jesus was talking about that. And what's interesting is he said, well, that's a work, yeah, believing in God. Uh, yeah, he said that to believe, here is the work of God that you should believe in him who he sent. Believing is a work. Confession, well, I'm doing it, so it's a work. Repentance, Jesus talks about the works that are worthy of repentance. Uh, you know, all of these th characteristics of, of bringing yeah, ourselves to even, that point. Even are things works. that aren't, aren't biblically sound. The things that we, I mean, things that we don't find in Scripture. There's no mention of a sinner's prayer in Scripture. But oh, that, yeah. But yeah. that's a word. You know, open your heart to Jesus. Well, you're doing something that allows. Right. That, right. that even that's something that you're doing. And that, that gets back to what I was saying earlier. Baptism is about as far away from a work that you can do as you can get. Which, which Jared, what you were saying, and this, this should blow some minds, what you were saying is if somebody comes along and says, I am saved by faith only, they are teaching a salvation by works only. Because believing is the work. The Bible says baptism is the work of God. So ironically, if you said, well, I believe, I say the sinner's prayer, I let Jesus in my heart, that is a salvation by works alone, mm -hmm. uh, which would be contrary to the word of God. Yeah. And that's a fascinating idea that I think most of the people that believe that would be shocked to know. Absolutely. And and it's not, it's not gotcha, it's not playing into a logic trap. I mean, basically what you're saying at that point is that I I have to believe God and that saves me. Well, that's taking the emphasis off of God, and it's putting the emphasis yes. on you. Yes. But if I say that God, through His grace, says that says that He wants to free me in baptism from my sin, then I'm then I'm totally passive in that. I mean, yes. I have to submit, but I'm totally passive in that. Otherwise, that's and right. that is exactly how Peter talks about this in 2 Peter chapter 3. And that's, this is one of my favorite passages when talking about baptism. And, and this really gets to the heart of maybe what some of our own brethren actually believe, that, that baptism, I'm sorry, I said 2 Peter, I meant 1 Peter, that 1 Peter chapter 3, that this gets to the heart of what some of our own brethren 
mistakenly communicate about baptism. I hope they don't believe this, but that that baptism is a work that I am doing that saves me. I've heard that said by by more than one person who worships with me on a Sunday morning, and it's always something, not necessarily now, but throughout the history of my preaching. But it's actually contrary to what the Scripture teaches. If I look at 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, it says, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. I want you to see that is the same transition that we saw over in Acts 2. It's the same transition. We haven't gone to Acts 2, but that Brian was talking about in Acts 2. The same transition in Titus 3, that Jesus was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, uh, who once were disobedient, uh, when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, Notice the ark that the, the construction of the ark is the only thing that's mentioned here, but what but what is be, baptism is being likened to is Noah and his family being brought through the flood and being rescued from sin. So corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of the dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so what baptism is is not a doing of anything. It is the appeal of the inner person to be resurrected in the same way that Jesus was resurrected. In fact, Peter even says it's not really about the putting away of the dirt that's on your flesh. That's that's not what baptism is about. And that takes it out of the realm of this being a ceremony that we go through that cleanses the body as our inner man has already been cleansed or anything like that. Peter says it's baptism is not really affecting your outer person. It is asking God to resurrect you in the same way that Jesus did. It is trusting God, it is appealing to God in faith for the thing that he's promised through grace. Let's put a little pin here to make a point too. Some people look at this passage and they, <clears throat> because they don't want to believe what, what the Bible very quickly says, they'll say, well, we're not talking about the baptism in water. We're talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. What I love about this passage, this is also one of my favorites, is that it's clearly talking about water, verse 20, and, verse, and again, the appeal to the concept of the removal of filth from the flesh is implying that that would be the mistaken understanding of baptism. Well, it can't be Holy Spirit baptism. Mm -hmm. uh, something, by the way, that's not really mentioned after Acts chapter, uh, Acts chapter 1, when Jesus promises it in Acts chapter 2. Mm -hmm. It must be talking about water baptism. Being baptized, being put down in water, and arising, which is that rising up that Colossians and Ephesians both point to as the work of God's grace— uh, that that moment comes about. And what I love about this passage, same thing you do, is that what we're seeing here is that this speaks to the nature of a man's response to God, This, it, which is utterly the key characteristic, that it is the idea. And, and what's so neat about this passage is that he's referencing the first reference of grace, Noah. Mm -hmm. And Noah's construction of the ark, which is the way that they are brought through uh, uh, the water, the, the ark is the means by which they're brought through, just like our hearing and believing and confessing uh, are the means by which we're constructing that which then God brings us through the water with. Uh, which is to say, if I was baptized without faith, it would be like Noah going through the flood without the ark. You know, I, I haven't I haven't prepared myself for those things, and I'm not prepared to go through it, which is, you know, something we see all throughout the New Testament as well. Yeah. 
And, and so he's emphasizing here that that baptism is an expression of your faith. It's not an expression that God has already taken away your sins. It is an expression calling out to God to to give you a good conscience in the form of Jesus being resurrected from the dead. So 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 it appeals to the resurrection of Jesus. Without baptism, there is no appeal to the resurrection of Jesus. There is no appeal to the greatest expression of grace. You know, grace didn't culminate in Jesus on the cross. Grace culminated in God raising Jesus from the dead. That's the great expression of grace. So you if if he didn't raise Jesus, there is no grace that we can appeal to for new life. There is you could the best you could argue is that there was a payment for sin, but there's no appeal to anything different. But in the resurrection of Jesus, God is making an, an appeal to us. He is calling us into this grace, and that baptism is a response to that. Yes, I want to be part of this grace. Yeah, and it's just it's just an excellent point. I love the idea that even as he says it, he says baptism now saves us. Um, and one thing I like to kind of make a point to is although the context is now as opposed to Noah, it also speaks to the immediate moment of salvation. Baptism is where it happens, which makes sense. Uh, mm -hmm. If I'm not being saved by my works, I'm not going to be saved when I believe or I confess or I repent. These are the things I'm called to do. I'm not going to be saved in those moments. Baptism is the place where I go in the water dead, which is what both Ephesians and Colossians said. You were buried dead and you arose alive. Baptism is the transformative moment from being dead to being alive. And that's the working of the grace of God. And that's why Paul in both of those letters, talking about the grace of God, wants us to be appealing in our mind to the moment we were dead and we came up alive. Now, one of the other passages that really emphasizes that maybe we don't understand grace the way that we should, uh, alongside this one, that 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 grace is pointing us toward baptism, as you were just expressing there. But one of the we were really close to it just a moment ago, and that yeah, was Titus. Yeah, Titus chapter two. This is absolutely mm -hmm. my favorite passage on grace, and it's one that I have taught for years among our brethren when I think that they sometimes fundamentally misunderstand grace. This time I'm going to remember to put it on the screen before I start reading it. So here we go. Let me go ahead and get screen share going. And Titus we, chapter 2, verse 11. Yeah, Titus chapter 2, verse 11. So this is kind of interesting because it, it would almost seem like Titus uh, is being had been sent to, to Crete to commission some people to be elders and oversee the congregation. And Titus is having a little trouble finding people that, that meet that requirement. And so it, it is uh, that, that Paul had some unkind things to say about Cretans that were sort of known around the, around the, uh, the Mediterranean about them and their behaviors toward, toward just living for the flesh. But he's reminding Titus that the grace of God is very powerful, and it's very it can actually change somebody from being one type of person to another. Then Titus 2, verse 11, it says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. I, I don't want to move from verse 12 yet. I want to really think about those words. Grace is absolutely a gift of God. It says so in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, and it brings salvation to all men. That means that apart from God's gift, we cannot be saved. 
Apart from Jesus on the cross, we cannot be saved. Apart from God's willingness to resurrect us from the dead of our lives, the dead works of our lives, we cannot be saved. But then this gift, not only did we see in 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 1 Peter chapter 3 that the gift is pointing us to call out to God in baptism, which follows this pattern of death, burial, and resurrection, but if we're going to say that grace is a gift, and it's only a gift, and it can only be received without any condition and freely and without any strings attached at all, you got a real problem with verse 12. Instructing yeah. us to deny ungodliness. So the first thing that grace does, this gift of God that brings salvation to all men, is it instructs us to deny ungodliness. It instructs us to deny worldly desires. It teaches us to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. And so I have a, I have a whole, actually I have two lessons on Titus 2, 11 through 13. And I teach them back and back to back. It's called Grace Expectations, or uh, one of the other titles I like to call it is Amazed by Grace. What it just said is that grace is instructing, it is transforming, and it is perfecting. Grace teaches us two things, to live, to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and then it teaches us how to live, this is the transforming, sensibly, righteously, and godly, and then in verse 13, it is perfecting. It teaches us to look for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. That purification of a people for his own possession means that, I mean, that's that's First Peter 2 kind of language, where we're called the royal priesthood, the holy nation, uh, uh, the chosen race, and then we're called a peculiar people for God's own possession. When you see this, what you see is you're using the same kind of language here with Paul that Peter uses. So one of the arguments we hear all the time is, you know, Paul and Peter didn't see eye to eye on this. They absolutely did. Paul is using, the author of, of, of Titus is using the same language that Peter uses in 1 Peter chapter 2. And so if I'm instructed by grace, I'm going to live differently. It is, it is uh, transforming me away from the spirit of the world to something that looks like the image of God, which is what Paul talked about in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17, when he talks about the, the days when they lived like the Gentiles and how they, they needed to walk in the image of the new man of God, which was to conform to the image of Christ. It's similar to the same language that you see in 1 Peter chapter 4, where, where Peter says the, the time for you to live like Gentiles is in the past, and they're wondering why you're not running to them, running with them in the same works of dissipation in 1 Peter, the opening of 1 Peter chapter 4. Of course, I'm paraphrasing these. We don't have time to go to all these passages. I wish we did. But what we're seeing is that Paul and Peter absolutely agree on what grace is, where we are transformed by grace, and what grace expects of us. So if I'm sitting here saying that grace is a gift of God with no strings attached and I can continue to live my life the way that I want to, I can continue to live in sin, I can continue to, to or I can um, just receive it with a spirit of thankfulness without it really being the point of transformation in my life, 
where I'm I'm learning what God wants from me, then I'm dis- excellent, excellent point. You know what I really love about this passage? <clears throat> What's that? I I love to take this passage and walk it back to Noah, um, because what is you just so like Noah? I do, I do, just like you Noah. like Noah. I do. Um, is that I go back in time and I say grace is given to Noah. How is that manifested? You know the word appeared that's used mm-hmm. in Titus 2. Manifested is really the same word. So how is it manifested? God said, bad thing's going to happen. Here's what you need to do. Now, what's so cool about that is Titus 2 says, the grace of God appears, manifested. Here's what you need to do to escape the bad things. And what's super cool is that that word appear is also in Titus 3. The grace of God appears. He says it a second time. It's like, it's not too many times that that word is used. And it's Titus 2 and Titus 3 are like two of the four times. And in Titus 3, he says, oh, yeah, that appearance, baptism. Uh, and then we have this great statement back uh, in First Peter. Oh, yeah, you know, baptism of Noah, baptism of us. It, it all just kind of falls right into place. It's it's one of those wonderful times where the Bible is is interwoven with an idea. And it interweaves our salvation and Noah's salvation and the appearance of grace. And what does grace do? It instructs. I love that. Um, you know, I uh, sometimes, I, you know, that that's a point when I preach this sermon, too. I, I hold up the Bible and I say, where do we find the instruction for how to live in, the, in, in an age? Well, how is God manifested to us his grace? It's through his word. He's manifested. He's made it known to us. And I just get so excited about that because... As I said, it weaves so perfectly together. The story of Noah, having grace, instruction. Noah prepares himself. God saves him. Grace appears to us. It instructs us what we need to do. We respond by believing, by confessing. God saves us at baptism. Yes. And when you when you see those connections and you begin to see, as, as you said, that this, these are words that are, that are carefully chosen. That they're not there, they're not there by happenstance, they're not there by accident. That this is something that the Bible is abundantly clear about. It wants us to see this connection. And if we don't see this connection, then we cannot accurately define grace or baptism. And one of the things that I want to point out is I've known people who would who would logically agree with you know the things that we say on most of the Bible, who I've heard say things like, I absolutely, you know, I don't understand why we sing Amazing Grace. We don't believe we're saved by grace. We believe we're saved in baptism. That's just as wrong. Yeah. If yeah. you don't understand that baptism is not saving yourself, that grace is not apart from expectation, then you can be as wrong one side as you can the other. I heard a guy use an analogy one time that uh, that, uh, and of course I'm gonna I'm gonna mess this up because I'm not a golfer, but uh, actually let me. <laughs> but he said there's he says if your swing is wrong one way, then you uh, you get a slice. If you open your I think if you open your the face of your club up too far, then you're gonna get a slice. But if you're if you're wrong the other way, then you get a hook. And it's only until you learn to hold the club the right way that you're going to drive the ball down the fairway. 
And that's kind of what we're saying is, look, you can minimize grace to the point where you have basically written out God in the plan of your salvation. Oh, he put Jesus on the cross, but everything else is me. That's wrong. Mm -hmm. But you can ignore what is incumbent upon every person, and that is to respond to the call of grace in the same way that Noah did through faith, which is you know, responding in baptism. Uh, and that that baptism is not a work that you're doing. It is an appeal to God to be accepted into his grace. And it isn't until we understand that there are, you know, the apostle, the apostle Paul uh, said in 2 Timothy chapter 3 that all scripture is given by the inspiration of God. It's profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Well, that same Apostle Paul over in Second Peter chapter 3, Peter calls the things that Paul's doing there Scripture. And so if all Scripture is given by the inspiration of God, then I can't camp out on any one verse and try to use it against everything else that's in Scripture. If we're being honest here, I have to be honest and say the Bible absolutely says we're saved by grace through faith. And the Bible absolutely says we are saved in baptism and that that's not the putting away the filth of the flesh, but the appeal to God for a good conscience according to the resurrection of Jesus or through the resurrection of Jesus, depending on your translation there. So if I'm being honest with both of those things, where does that lead me to? You know, here's a great uh, way of looking at this very idea. If I, if, as you said, if we're honest with this, well, it, out, it comes back to baptism again. When I get baptized, you know, Paul talks about this in Galatians. He says, as many of us who have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Um, what kind of things are happening at baptism? Well, we've already really seen the Bible is very clear. It's the moment we're saved. But we can also understand we're adopted. We're given a new name. One of, the, one of the ideas is, I love the idea of putting on Christ. Sometimes I should say, I clothe myself in Christ. And that's neat because uh, I love the idea to think that now I am clothed in the righteousness of Christ. I am credited by faith, his righteousness. Now that's important because even though I'm going to maintain that garment, you know, there's, there's a neat statement in Revelation where he says, don't take off the garment. Don't let your, you know, shame be seen to all. There's the parable of the wedding feast where he talks about the man that came in and took off his garment. He was without a garment. Mm -hmm. um, you can't take, you got to maintain that garment. I think it's like a uniform. You know, if you've ever been in the service, you know, you have to, you have to stay in uniform by maintaining your uniform. You can't, you know, your, your, your ribbons, your, your uh, tags and devices, you know, you have to keep those things on to, to stay in uniform. That's how we maintain our salvation. But in the end, when I stand before God, God's not going to say, Brian, you're a pretty good guy. Brian's not a good enough guy. Jesus is perfect. And he's going to look at me and he's going to say, well, Brian, you weren't quite good enough, but I see you put on Jesus and his righteousness can be ascribed to you. So in the end, nothing I'm going to do is going to, is going to earn me my salvation. Nothing I'm going to do is going to get there. It, it, is, it is completely his grace, his mercy that saves me because I put it on. I clothed myself in Christ. So when he looks at me, he doesn't see me. Uh, he sees the only name that's going to be saved. I like to think of the idea that, you know, in, in the book of Revelation, talks about the book of life and the book of deeds. And, and the book of deeds has our names. It's all the things we did. The book of life, we might think of it that there's really only one name in the book of life. 
that name, uh, Acts chapter 4, that name by which all men will be saved, the only name by which we'll be saved, the name Jesus Christ, the name that I put on in baptism. Uh, and I keep on by maintaining my salvation, by working out my salvation with fear and trembling, by uh, Titus chapter 2 and instructing us, you know, the things that are instructing us how it is that we, you know, avoid the works of unrighteousness. I keep this uniform on. So that when I stand before God, he says, well, I don't see Brian. I see Jesus. And I get in on Jesus's credit, which is <clears throat> which is always a statement that comes back to grace that in the end, I'm being saved because I'm getting there on the credit of Jesus. Well, isn't, that's that, exact, isn't that exactly what he said in Romans chapter six, where he says yes! that we're yes. walking in the newness of life, that we're being baptized into his death, just as we are going to be raised into his life. Yeah. That there is a sense in which that when we live according to grace and we are being instructed and transformed and perfected by grace and that ultimately what we're doing is we're asking God to see us through the lens of Jesus as our Savior. Yes, yes. And that what that means, and this, if you grew up in a tradition of faith where you heard taught grace only by faith alone, then what that is such a fundamentally important thing to know that that's still true because it is not my good works that are going to change how God views me. And it will never be by my perfection. I mean, first John chapter one says the one who says he is without sin is deceiving himself. And the one who says he has never sinned uh, makes God a liar that I am never without the need of the grace of Jesus. Now, I am trying to look like Jesus. That's how I spend my life. But if I think that I am ever without need of the grace of Jesus or that I am saved because I was baptized rather than because the grace of Jesus compelled me to surrender to God in baptism, then I am misunderstanding fundamentally what the Bible is teaching. Now, uh, Jared, I'm going to throw, I'm going to take a different direction here for just a second. Go Somebody might come back and say, well, wait a second. Are you saying that if I get baptized and I'm saved by grace, I did, nothing I do matters anymore? Somebody must have said that to Paul because in Romans chapter 6, Paul, trying to make this point, tries to steer away from that too. Right. Paul's going to say, you don't sin so that grace abounds. One of the important ideas is that passage that we started off with, that we plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain, which, which is, is to say, <laughs> which is where we started. Yeah. And we started there for a reason, because I can receive the grace of God. I can put on Christ, but it's also possible that having done so, I can lose it or it can be in vain. It can be meaningless for me if I do not maintain the grace of God, which is why the grace of God instructs us. Why it mm -hmm. teaches us to put aside ungodly things, uh, uh, worldly lusts, to live soberly, righteously, godly in the present age. There's the grace of God. Maintaining my uniform, maintaining my uh, Christ, uh, the grace of God is telling me what I need to do to maintain that, or what I need to abstain from to maintain that. And if I don't continue to abide, now Jesus describes it a little differently when he says, you've got, got to abide in me. Uh, like in John, he talks about, I'm the vine, you're the branch, you have to abide in me, abide in my teaching. 
John says it differently in 2 John, you have to abide in the doctrine of Christ. Well, that's grace, because the grace of God instructs. That's what the doctrine of Christ does. You know, it instructs us. So I'm abiding in the doctrine of Christ. Uh, if, if I'm abiding in the things that Christ has taught, um, then I am uh, confident of, you know, that salvation, which is exactly what Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1, where he tells us that if we are adding to our faith, virtue, virtue, knowledge, knowledge, self-control, godliness, uh, persever perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, love, he says your entrance is a, into the kingdom is abundant. He, he says you won't fall. You're, 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 you're going to make it in if you're always laboring to put that on. Now, why does he say you're always going to make it in? Not because you've never erred, but because you are maintaining grace. Well, he even says something really interesting there is he says, and this get, this strikes at the heart of Calvinism, this is how you make God's calling and choosing you certain. Yeah, yeah, so, it does strike at Calvinism. You're right. Uh, explain how. So, so God's calling and choosing me is not a passive recipient of grace that I can't control and that is overwhelming me. It's actually, am I surrendering to the transformation of grace? And in living my life according to the the dictates and the teachings of the grace that are revealed to me in Jesus. Now, here's the thing. I mean, if you stuck with us this long, first of all, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, we were worried this episode was going to be dry, but I actually think it might might be one of our, our our more fun ones. But here here's the thing. There are two absolutely wrong ways of looking at grace. And it sort of gets back to something I'm saying earlier, but either of these ways of looking at grace where you're minimizing any kind of response or where you're almost completely dismissing grace because you're putting it all on the response, you are fundamentally setting the Bible against itself. When you take yes. passages that absolutely clearly dictate you're saved by grace through faith, you're saved in baptism, not the putting away the filth of the flesh, but the appeal to God for a good conscience. When you set these against each other, you are you are setting the Bible against itself. You are breaking the number one rule about interpreting the Scripture, and that is the Scripture cannot be used to invalidate itself. If I can walk away from this discussion and say, baptism is my work, I'm doing this, I'm saving myself because God was gracious enough to put Jesus on the cross for me, then you have fundamentally disagreed with the Bible, and if you're right, throw the whole thing out. And if you can walk away from this discussion saying grace requires no response, it doesn't require a transformation or an instruction, it doesn't require me to respond with an appeal to God to take away my sins in baptism, then you are fundamentally disagreeing with the Bible, throw the whole thing out, none of it makes any sense, and that there's got to be a balance here where the two agree with one another. And whatever doctrinal position you're in, if you cannot harmonize that, with, with baptism in water, not some Holy Spirit feeling, because that's that's contrary to every baptism we see from the book of Acts all the way to Peter talking about it in Second and First Peter chapter 3, that every instance of baptism is is something about a washing of regeneration. It, it is implying that it is the the act of submission to God in grace. If you are, if you cannot make those two passages stand together without changing them, you have fundamentally broken Scripture, and you do not believe the Word of God. Profound, and i got to say, amen, uh, which is kind of where we started off, that there are two big misunderstandings about grace. Yeah, That grace is somehow God's mercy that uh, I don't have to do a thing to receive, or that grace somehow is something that I totally earn by working things out. And 
got to understand they are both contrary to the Word of God. Man, so many new discussions are going to come out of this. We need to have a discussion on what is faith. We need to have a discussion on the yeah. idea of saved by perfection versus <laughs> sa- saved in in diligence. Uh, diligence. The word I've been I like. striving, but diligence is a better yeah. word there. Saved in diligence or saved by perfection. I mean, we could do a whole other episode on grace, but I mean, fundamentally, the maybe 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 the thing that we need to get to is an episode on what does it mean to overcome sin, because mm. that's. Mm. That's really what grace is trying to teach us, is that we don't want to live in sin. And so, lots more that we could cover. I just feel like we scratched the surface of it. We've already been going yeah. nearly an hour. But do you have any last thoughts for the for the listeners? You know, we, we really have kind of summed it up well to say two different concepts don't reflect what the truth is. You know that I love Noah, and I love to see Noah's salvation as paralleled in our own. Noah's referenced quite a few times in the New Testament. As somebody that we ought to consider, not not him as a person, but what his process of salvation was like. The New Testament wants us to know it and understand it. And I believe it's because it it perfectly synchronizes the work of grace and how grace is made known to us, how it appears, how it teaches us, how we receive it, how we maintain. All of the different things that come up with that, that's what we need to understand. That Noah is is exactly what we need to know about grace. It's almost as if that's the primary reason the story of Noah is in the Bible. It's almost as if that's why it's there. Yeah, that's exactly right. All right, buddy. Well, if we don't lose subscribers over this, I guess we're not trying. But hey, we're we're over way over 700 now. So we've actually picked up quite a bit of momentum. We want to thank all of our new subscribers. As always, please share the podcast. This will be an excellent one to start some discussions with, start some evangelism with, and if you fundamentally just think we're wrong on this, please tell us. I mean, this is uh, what we really want out of this is to talk about the Word of God with people who are interested in the Word of God. And that doesn't mean that you have to agree with us. It just means that there's a discussion to be had. And I hope you hear that in the way that we talk about these things, that that Brian and I are both always excited to talk about the Bible and with anyone who's interested in the Bible. Whether we agree or not, I believe that there's one of three possibilities. Either you're either you could be right, I could be right, or we're both wrong. And we need to know what the Bible actually says. And that's what our program is all about. I think next week we're talking about alcohol, Brian. That uh, that was mm-hmm. the big one in our listener response poll. That what about the Christian and drinking? Does the Bible permit drinking? I know that's one that you can get pretty fiery about. And, I can't. Uh, that uh, so Brian is rip roaring ready to go. He might even carry a, you know, wear something like a, a post apocalyptic vest and headband and carry a battle axe next week or something. Brian, my likes Viking it. helmet ready. Yeah, your Viking helmet ready. Yeah, different kind of boat. You won't be Noah next week. So uh, that's right. That's right. <laughs> but for all of us here at Biblically Speaking, for me and my co-host Brian Tiberius Haydens, we want to say thanks for being here. Have a good day. And God bless.